Well, on this Remembrance Day weekend, you may be interested to know that uh, many churches in our denomination, the Mennonite Brethren, refer to the Sunday closest to Remembrance Day, or Veterans Day, for those who are Americans, as, uh, as Peace Sunday. And for nearly 500 years, until today, our Anabaptist ancestors, going back to the time of the Reformation, sought to follow the example of Jesus and his command, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, I'm wearing a, a button, and it says, to remember is to work for peace. I got it from MCC. For the early Anabaptists who took seriously Jesus' words to heart, a commitment to peacemaking included a refusal to take up arms in war, a position that made them objects of verbal and physical persecution, including imprisonment and death. When it comes to Remembrance Day, it is certainly appropriate to remember and pray, pay tribute to the sacrifices so many have made in the struggle for peace. However, there is no shame in also insisting that Christ calls us to pursue his way of peacemaking. I'm reminded of a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. If it wasn't for copyright, I would show it to you. But you'll get the idea. And uh, Calvin and Hobbes have decided they're going to play, you know, war. You know, and so they've each got a gun. And, uh, and then uh, Hobbes asks, uh, how come we play war and not peace? And Calvin says, too few role models. <laughs> the cartoon goes on, they each end up uh, shooting each other, and there's a dart on each of their heads. And uh, he concludes as well, kind of a stupid game, isn't it? But too few role models. Thankfully, Christ and his followers throughout the ages have modeled another way. And I want you to join me in a, in a responsive prayer and I'm going to read the words that appear in the plain print, and I invite you to read the words in bold. It is a, a reading, a prayer together. God of Shalom, you welcome us, welcome us into a family of peacemakers from Abraham to Abigail, Barnabas, and the woman at the well. And so as your people of peace, we pray today for peace in our world. We pray for peace for people in places caught in cycles of violence and conflict and for those making peace who offer hospitality to those seeking refuge. We remember that Jesus said, Bless peace. They will be called children of God. We see in Scripture that Jesus calmed storm-tossed seas and stormy lives. Extend your power and grace again, especially upon those who suffer in a storm of violence. Speak peace and healing over bodies and spirits broken by the chaos. Praise the one who holds with change and the widow and gives stranger a land and a home. We pray for those who are engaged in making important decisions in this time. For those who report on these events in the media, for those who shape public opinion. Give them the courage to speak out and the restraint to listen, that together we may discern the truth and hold aloft its light. Everyone who does evil 
hates the light. We pray you would direct all governments in the way of peace and justice, that your will may be known and done among the nations. Deliver us from the sinful attitudes and actions which lead to war and conflict and stir up within us the will to establish righteousness and justice on the earth. Lord, take away the temptation to trust in human power and military solutions and give us the courage to be your servants in making peace. Lord, we pray for peace in our nation and in our communities. Help us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Lord, make us instruments of your peace so that our homes and communities, our church and our nation might resonate more fully with the peace you have long desired to give us. With one voice, we repent of our divisive attitudes and actions. We commit ourselves to working together for reconciliation, peace, and justice. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I want to briefly introduce you to a person by the name of Frank Peters. Frank Peters was beaten, starved, and kept in solitary confinement during the Second World War because he refused to take up arms. He was among the Canadian Mennonites and other pacifists who were jailed in the 1940s because they refused to become soldiers when they were drafted. His son Robert later recalled how his father went into a prison and went into prison a really tall, strong, vigorous man. But the torture that he received in the Canadian military prison created a permanent back condition he never recovered from. After more than two years, Frank was released with a dishonorable discharge and a prison record, making it hard to find work. He returned to the first Mennonite church with a broken body, but an unbroken faith. If you have been with us in our study of 1 Peter, then you will know by now that the reason that Peter wrote it was to help his fellow believers know how to handle suffering, especially the suffering that they were experiencing for their faith. In the first three and a half chapters, Peter talked about foundational principles of faith. In the last half of, verse, of chapter 4, he gets very practical. Let's read First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, 
But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Earlier in this chapter, Peter talked about Christian behavior that the world finds confusing. That was back in verse 4. Here he identifies pagan reactions to Christians that Christians may find confusing. He describes the backlash against believers as a, a fiery ordeal, pyrasmos in Greek. It's clearly something incredibly intense, painful, and potentially destructive. The kind of thing that your instant reaction would be to flinch from. Yet Peter says they should not be surprised by it. I assume that he says this because enough of them were surprised. And because the actual experience of suffering was hard to bear. Not everyone responds to suffering in the same way, in part because we have different thresholds of pain. For some, it's physical pain that is the worst. For others, it's emotional. Sometimes it's relational. The cause or reason for one's suffering is also a big factor in how one handles it. You're probably familiar with the old Buckley's commercial. It tastes bad, but it works. <laughs> right? So, when we experience something that is really bad or painful, and it appears to be unjust for no good reason, it is extremely difficult to bear, and that is often when we wonder, why, God, is this happening to me? Peter, he uses this image of a fiery process of metal refining is the imagery and he uses that as a paradigm, a model, a way of seeing it. And the heat of opposition that they are experiencing is testing and refining them. And when metal is refined, when it's tempered, we say, it is done in order to increase the, the flexibility of metal so that it won't break under pressure. Earlier in this chapter, Peter already identified some godly reasons for their suffering, their refusal to celebrate and participate in what unbelievers celebrated and did. In verses 3 and 4, he talked about different sexual and moral ethics. And I was reminded of the, the world's reactions to, you know, those who don't support and celebrate their causes. A woman's right to kill her unborn baby or medical assistance to die, or drag queens and pride parade events. Often the reaction, if you're not celebrating and supporting, can be negative and even hostile. The reactions to Christians who refuse military service because of their faith, that is, conscientious objectors, has been and continues to be hostile in many places. Reminded uh, of the... Uh, a story from Ethiopia. I don't know this uh, believer's name, but he, he writes, anyone who has read the New Testament 
cannot dare to kill anyone, he said with conviction as he told his story. In Ethiopia, this is very difficult, however. People have no choice. Young men must serve in the military. And he concluded, sadly, some of my relatives and friends have been killed or have killed in the military. And as a result of much poverty and injustice, our society is very violent. Young men are, accepted to, are expected to stand up and fight for their family and the motherland. And refusing to serve in the army, he said, is considered irresponsible and unacceptable. He said, I have heard that several Jehovah's Witnesses were shot when they refused to serve in the army. Initially, when North American missionaries, tried, Mennonite missionaries, tried to talk to us about non-resistance, I found this teaching very difficult to accept. Gradually, however, my convictions changed. I, I studied Jesus' teachings. I read the stories of Anabaptist martyrs in Holland, and I was challenged by the witness and example of the missionaries. I especially remember a Mennonite doctor who visited Ethiopia after having served with his church in Vietnam. I was so impressed that he was able to care for people on both sides of that conflict, even those who had been defined by his country as the enemy. Now, whenever I am tempted by violence, I try to remember the teaching and example of Jesus, the Anabaptists, and those missionaries. And he concluded, please pray for us in Ethiopia that we will be able to follow through on our convictions about non-resistance. Well, Peter describes a willingness to suffer from following the way of Christ as a, he calls it a participation. Uh, the word is for fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. And he reminds us of the pattern of Christ. How his suffering had to precede his glory. Their participation with Christ then, I think of it like a two sides of a coin. With suffering on the temporal, earthly side and glory on the heavenly side. And those two are intimately linked. And that is why he says we can rejoice already. Already as they anticipate, notice how overjoyed they will be when his glory is revealed. That is when Christ returns. Greater than V-Day, the day of victory. I remember my mother was in school when V-Day happened. And she said, I remember um, one of the local uh, political leaders came to class and he said, the war is over. And everybody celebrated and cheered and he said, school's over for the day. Need to go home and celebrate. <laughs> And Peter is saying, we have a V-Day coming. And he is clear that the, the prerequisite for this future glory and blessing is suffering for Christ. Notice in verse 14, he says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ. Now, we need to remember that living in an honor-shame culture and insult was much more than just a, a form of verbal criticism that, you know, one might just deflect. It was a public disgrace that would cause one to lose face publicly. 
It would damage or even destroy one's reputation and social standing. And that is why Peter says in verse 16, he writes, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, disgraced, but praise God that you bear his name. That audience of one is far greater than the other audience around you. Now, not all suffering is Christian suffering. Sometimes we suffer for the wrong, harmful, or dumb things that we say or do. And in verse 15, Peter gives the example of criminal behaviors. I know I'm sure we can think of other dumb things. In fact, uh, just a picture here. Of, there's a whole bunch of pictures of why women live longer than men. <laughs> you know, because of stuff like this. You know, I was going to have a showing of how many guys have done something stupid like that, but it would probably be pretty incriminating. My hand would go up. Okay, so if you fall and now you're suffering as a result of that, this doesn't really categorize as Christian suffering. It is suffering, but it's not this kind. And uh, so sometimes Christians, we also feel we are discriminated against because of our faith when, in fact, we may have invited it by judgmental attitudes and an awful lack of grace. I was at a conference recently, and uh, one of the pastors said he had gone, decided to go, I think it was a drag queen protest, and he wanted to go and see how each side was responding to this. And, uh, and he heard one of the people with a, you know, against it, and uh, who he knew was a Christian saying things that he said, I cannot repeat, that should never be said. We invite it sometimes, and that we should not be doing that, obviously. Sometimes we, like all people, suffer simply because we live in a fallen world, a world that is now permeated with injustice and pain. In fact, Paul, Paul the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, that creation itself is groaning, suffering, not able to live out the God's design for it because it has been racked by human sin and evil. And sometimes, though, we suffer because we identify with Christ and we seek to obey his commands and live by his values and ethics. And we may be verbally insulted publicly shamed, exploited, barred from some jobs, or even lose our jobs. Sometimes it's because, are we explicitly standing up for Christ? Because we're standing up for truth. When this, we're not willing to go along with corruption. When this happens, Peter says, praise God that you bear his name, that you are identifying with him. Jesus said the same words. Socially, Peter is saying, your reputation and relationships, oh, they may take a big hit. But the spirit of glory and of God rest, that is, remain on you. Actually, these words that the spirit will rest on him is, is used of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest, that is, remain on him. And Peter is now applying that to the Messiah's people. And it shows how 
primary and deep the believer's identity is with Christ. We are literally in Christ. And it is therefore, especially in our moments and seasons of greatest need, that the Spirit, he is saying, is present, remaining, eager to equip, to empower, to sustain us. So to briefly recap, Peter has already told his fellow believers how to handle suffering by 1A, expect it. Expect it to happen, just like it did to Jesus, right? You're with him, what's going to happen? And Jesus said, you know, what happened to me, it's going to happen to my followers. And secondly, recognize God's greater purpose in it. I'm reminded of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis. He will say to his brothers, you intended to harm me when you sold me into slavery, but God intended it for good. So the human people may have bad motives for doing it, but God, that is not the end of the story. God has a bigger, a greater intention for good. Our faith, for example, Peter had said, is refined, purified, strengthened. And God is glorified when we pass the test. Think about uh, the book of Job, right? How glorified. And it also serves for the good of others as a witness to others. You know, when we respond to suffering with praise and rejoicing rather than with grumbling and complaining. I remember reading a story. uh, After World War I, there was a convoy of Mennonite, Russian Mennonite refugees who who had arrived in the city of Berlin. And there seemed to be an endless flow of exhausted, shabby, and miserable people. Even then, however, there was order and, and discipline among them. And as they gathered quietly in a group, suddenly you could hear sounds of music echoing through the train station. They were singing in German, Now thank we all our God. And as they sang verse after verse, a train attendant asked the Dutch pastor who was uh, helping them, say, what kind of people are these? And he said, Mennonites from Russia. And then the attendant said thoughtfully, I'd like to be a Mennonite too. A witness. How do we handle suffering? Are we grumbling and complaining or are we able to see God has a higher purpose in it? It can also be worse, worse, yes. So even if suffering has a good purpose, a further explanation of why it is happening is necessary. And we have that in verses 17 to 19. The reason, according to Peter, is really quite simple. It is the time to begin the final judgment. The very judgment, he says the judgment, not a judgment. The very judgment that the Old Testament repeatedly says would begin with God's people and in God's house. And so Peter sees the current fiery trial the church is undergoing as a sign that the final judgment has already begun in the present. A judgment that will purify the church. See, salvation, we sometimes think it's Future, it is already in the present, and Peter is saying, and judgment is already taking place. Paul will say a similar thing. Uh, The wrath of God is being revealed against, you know, the evil and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth. 
And uh, so the judgment has already begun. And this fact, Peter is saying, should not frighten the Christians or cause them to wonder. I mean, you wonder, is this what I signed up for? For if it is hard for the ch- with the church, you know, where we might want God to kind of bend the rules, aren't we kind of insiders here? Can't you go easy on us? It's like, no, he, he always applies the righteous standard the same to everyone. So if it's hard for the church, how much harder will, will it be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And Peter is saying, you're better off than you think. Your present earthly sufferings will seem mild by comparison. You are suffering now so that you fully identify with Christ and his cause so that you won't be on the wrong side of judgment in the end. And this point is reinforced in verse 18 with a quote from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. And Peter's argument is basically the same as the Old Testament, but it's raised to a higher standard from a a this worldly judgment that Proverbs is focusing on to the final eternal judgment. And when Jesus was asked whether there are only a few that are going to be saved, he responded by saying, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Peter too warns that the testing of faith, it is a serious test. It really is. Its fire will separate those who truly are committed to Christ from those whose commitment is shallow or partial. And so Peter's closing advice in verse 19 is very practical. So then those who suffer according to God's will, rather than, be, rather than because you're going against the grain of God's will and are finding that painful, Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do so. Entrust yourself into God's care, into his hands. I mean, it's into a faithful person's hands that we want to entrust ourselves, right? Somebody with a long track record that can be counted on. And especially, he's saying, with something as significant as our eternal destiny. You want to know that the hands that you are putting your life into for eternity are absolutely 100% faithful. And keep doing what is good. That is what God says is good. Even, especially when others call God's good ways evil and their evil ways they call good. I mean, that goes back all the way to Isaiah 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Some things never change. But Peter's saying, whatever else others call it, keep living what is good according to God. So to conclude, how should we handle suffering? Well, one, don't be surprised when it happens. If you are surprised, perhaps you have a reduced or distorted understanding of what the Bible says we should expect when we follow Christ. You know, some of us have heard a lot, you know, it's come to Christ, he's going to make your life all better. It's good to come to Christ, but sometimes it's going to really cost you. Sometimes it's going to create division within your own family. 
Secondly, remember God wants to use it for the greater good. It's got to look higher. If Joseph, for example, had just looked at what his brother's intent for him was, he would have been swallowed up, I think, by bitterness. When I've gone through challenges in life, that's what happens to me, at least. And I need God to remind me that it's only the end if you don't let me use it for a greater good. In our small group this week, and our Bible study group meets on Thursday nights here, open to anyone, by the way, 7.15 on Thursdays, we were sharing, how can uh, suffering change a person's life for the better? And you know what? There were some excellent stories that were shared. We concluded it really can. Thirdly, commit and entrust yourself into God's faithful hands. Uh, at the prayer retreat, at the half day of prayer last Saturday, not yesterday, the week before, someone, uh, I think that's where it was, somebody was talking about tattoos, and they said, did you know God has a tattoo? I was like, really? Yeah. Isaiah 49, verse 16. God says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Tattooed you on the palms of my hand. Wow. If I wanted to be tattooed on anybody's hand, it's God's. That, that. Maybe we should maybe I should tattoo on my hand. Remember you're tattooed on God's hands. And fourthly, continue to do good. Even when others do evil, even when others say what you are doing is evil, continue to do good. And also, Peter has said this before, don't let the bad behavior of others determine your response. Don't mirror evil. If somebody is hostile towards you, don't be hostile towards them. If you're going to be in a protest, you know, and you think the other side, look how terrible they're being, you better not mirror that. Continue to do good. I was thinking, you know, sometimes we need to practice these in small things so we can do it in bigger things. And uh, what God brought to mind, he's like, Dave, why don't you practice this when you're driving this week? <laughs> Somebody cuts you off, cuts into your spot. I thought that's going to be hard to do that. But if you, don't practice, if you don't practice it in the basic things of life, then your instinctive response is going to be the way you're practicing in the basic things of life. And my basic instinct is not to continue to do good when I'm cut off in traffic. So that's my homework for this week as a reminder and as a practice. Because ultimately, God has greater designs in mind, even in the small things. That's the way that we will be ready when the bigger commitments come and happen. And the challenge to our faith really cost, can cost us in big ways. 
is because we've been practicing in the little things and we find that God is faithful. Uh, I want to invite the worship team to come up. As they're coming, just uh, some of you will re- remember a lady by the name of Gail McGee. She used to attend our church, her and uh, her husband Keith. Keith ended up going on to be with the Lord when he w- became very ill and, and cancer. And Gail is also in her last days. But uh, she messaged uh, someone, the last message that she sent, uh, she had said, I, I don't know I'll be able to still do much with my phone. It's getting bad. But she's, she, her last message was, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. And uh, I, re- I just was reminded of Keith. I remember her husband when he was in his last days and the care aides would come into their home. And, uh, and the care aide, one of them who came regularly said, you know, this is, if you don't mind saying, this is a very, you're very strange. <laughs> Your reaction, I mean, she said, is very strange. You know, you're always so positive. You're encouraging me. I do not see this. And they had opportunities to share their faith and why. They believed this wasn't the end. The end wasn't the end. And the hope that were being shared. And in the midst of that suffering, there was even the light of Christ was shining even greater. And that was a helpful reminder for me in Gail's message. The Lord is with me. Let us pray. Oh Lord, none of us likes suffering. You didn't like it. You prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, that if it was possible that this cup of suffering would be taken away. But you knew And you trusted in the Father's higher purpose, a great and grand and glorious purpose. And Lord, you have called us as your followers to carry on your ministry, not in our own power and in our own strength, but in your power, in your strength. You have said that the Spirit that rested on you, you said, That is the spirit I give to you as well. Lord, we thank you that you have so fully identified with us that it is a privilege, Lord, for us to be able to identify with you in small and in big ways. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip and enable and empower us, Lord, to live for you, to continue to do good, Lord, for your honor and for your glory, for the good of our faith, but, Lord, for the good and witness of others, that others too, Lord, might come into a saving relationship with you. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Ariel, for leading us in worship today. Songs to carry with us. Just a reminder that if you would like prayer, Yosef, Pastor Yosef, is available here, and he would love to pray with you and, to, and pray for you. I want to send you off. Oh, and just the choir reminder, practice uh, shortly after the service is over. Closing words of Second Peter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.